Hey everybody, my name is Alex and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. I hope I fixed all of the recording problems, but of course, life can't go perfect. That would be too good for 2020, honestly. It wouldn't be honest of it as a year. So, um, my keyboard is currently dead, like my external keyboard. My, um, keyboard on my actual MacBook that I used to record on is fine, but... That will that will just be back end funkiness that hopefully you won't ever even see. So thanks to everybody who's been listening to podcasts lately, especially through all of the funkiness. Um, thanks to people who listened to my last couple episodes on on collector culture and on One Piece film gold. Of course, as always. You love it when, or I love it when a somebody decides to just make a heist movie, and I love it even better when somebody like as high profile as One Piece is like, "What if we just made a heist movie?" Um, and spoiler, that's what One Piece film gold is. If you haven't seen it, it's it's worth your time. Um, you can rent it on Amazon or find it. I'm sure a bunch of other places. But in kind of continuation um, of my, like, movie theme that I've got going here because I've been taking it super easy and also um, Cyberpunk just came out. I got, I got, so I pulled the most Cyberpunk moves to play Cyberpunk, I feel, in my soul. I um, got it on Stadia because I don't have a next gen, I don't have a, I don't have a console that can play it because all I have is a Nintendo Switch. And that's not, like, Nintendo Switch and Cyberpunk are two games that will never meet. It will just never happen. Um, just, and I'm fine with that. The world is fine with that. It should be fine with that. But, um, I, I don't have a next-gen console. I don't, I, I can, if I could find one to buy, I could buy one. But I don't want to spend that kind of money. So I went on the, and this will tie in, I promise, to what we're talking about today. I went on on the internet, and I actually have a Stadia Pro account, which means I pay $9 a month. It gives me, like, some amount of games I can download, for, that I can um, claim for free. And as long as I'm subscribed to it, it'll let me play those games. Um, the coolest one they've got right now is basically... Anything but hip, anything Hitman except for Hitman Three, you can just get on Stadia Pro, <laughs> um, which is just cool as a thing to try out. But I wanted a um, controller experience specifically for um, what's it called for things like Hitman, but also things like um, Cyberpunk because those are shooters, and I generally speaking need a controller because I don't have two hands so like a twitchy motions on like a keyboard just don't they just don't they just don't go well for me because I've got to like bounce between keys with one hand it's not a good look um so I've been I've been kind of like pressing through um cyberpunk just because I want to enjoy the story I always play things I always play things in the easiest setting because I'm like usually there for the whole experience, not to be challenged necessarily. And also, let's be honest, I'm not that good. Easy's hard enough. I already died on the first mission. Leave me alone. But, 
Cyberpunk kind of does something interesting in its relationship to its advert from its to its with its advertising to its game in that its advertising wanted to talk about all these things. Its social media account really fucked up by being super transphobic and should be given zero room to run. Like, as soon as they fuck up now, it's like, it's like knives out, baby, let's go. And that's the way it should be, because they fucked up hard, a lot. Um, but, it's, it's advertising makes, it's pre-release advertising, I should say, has all of these, like, thoughtful ideas about class and culture and, like, people's place in it and blah, 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 blah. Cyberpunk thoughts. It's post-release advertising. The ad I've seen the most is just Keanu Reeves in his face talking about if, if you're only a criminal if you get caught in the future, baby. So go steal a goddamn car. Um, but, um, the... The long and short of it is, is that's not really a concern of the game. Like, it is a concern of the game. It is there, but it's not there in a way where it's, like, super... What? It's there in... It's going to sound weird. It's there in a way where it feels like people who... Are trying to be honest but not get too close to the not get too close to the edge of the frying pan and hence into the fire of with this stuff are writing dialogue of what they think a conversation about this stuff would sound like and that's a really weird way of saying like it kind of misses the mark on that score but that brings me to our topic of conversation today, you may notice it's something we've talked about before, and that is Satoshi Kon's immaculate masterpiece, Tokyo Godfathers. And the reason why I want to talk about Tokyo Godfathers is a couple big things. First, it it has this mythic status in not only Satoshi Kon's um, uh, library of work, but also in anime films in general and in anime in general. And that's because a bunch of old, a bunch of old-time otaku like me and like a bunch of other people who are just who who are like deep, like, decades into this shit, at some point saw Tokyo Godfather dubbed. <laughs> and it wrecked our brains. <laughs> because we didn't know what to do. Because we only saw it once, like, in the dead of fucking night, when somebody went rogue and, like, broadcast a Canadian copy or some nonsense. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I You can look this up. And... In the ba- in the back of our craw, like stuck in our craw for this in- for like this entire like decades, literally decades, has been no, there's a double of that fucking movie, and it's not. That's the thing. Until very recently, there was not. 
it was only subtitled. And we all, like, sat, like, alone shivering in the corner with this beautiful dream of, like, there must be a dub something. No, that thing was shown, like, on Canadian television and, like, a couple other sketchy scenarios that, that led to people in America seeing it. And then, like, was just burned as a stick. Don't know what happened to it. It's probably in a drawer somewhere, but don't know what happened to it. Um, and a lot of that was right stuff. Not the company, but, like, right things having to do with Satoshi Kon after his death. Because if, um, I believe Satoshi Kon died of, um, kidney cancer. Or, like, pancreas cancer. One of the, one of the, like, bean-shaped organ cancers. <laughs> That makes any sense. And when he died, he like the rights became up in the air because he was all of a sudden dead. Um, the most tragic part of that is that his last work, um, a piece I think, um, film called I think that's going to be called the Beautiful Dream Machine, which was more in the vein of Paprika, which would have been amazing. Um, which I've also talked about. On, I've talked about Paprika on this podcast very early on, but he nobody would touch that thing, and also it made it a, a lot stickier to deal with his other stuff because Toshikon was such a well-renowned director, and he made he he made anime films that were unlike anything being made at the time or being made kind of still to this day because he was not making anime films that felt like the anime that we all know and love. Um, even, even Hayao Miyazaki at, on some level because of his mass of popularity because Studio Ghibli's mass of popularity has this recognizable anime-ness to his stuff. It's not... It's not, um... I should have this. It's not... It's not like you're watching an episode of Pokemon when you watch Hayao Miyazaki. But you do see really familiar design elements and really familiar, like, um... And, like animation flourishes and stuff that make it feel like anime in Miyazaki stuff. That is very that is very much absent from Satoshi Kon's work. Um, another huge thing that was in *License Limbo* just came out. Um, of his um, I've also talked on this about on this podcast. *Paranoia Agent*. If you go watch *Paranoia Agent*. There's so little of what you recognize as traditional anime animation animated motion of people in that show. It's kind of stunning. <laughs> um, and it makes the show more stunning because it feels so that show feels so unique because of its lack of connected of connection to what was happening at the time or what has happened since in anime because he was just interested in different things. He was interested 
in much more of a real-world storytelling, but he went through anime. He... Um... He... he his first film, Perfect Blue, was all about that. Was all about that. What Was not all about that. Um, was... I think that was his first film. Um... Don't quote me on that. I'm 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 just a dude who loves anime. I only know things because of the amount of years I've been watching it, honestly. Um <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, this show has not been researched a lot. Um but he he went he went the route of animation for Perfect Blue because he produced that. Th he was producing that thing for a long time in live action, and I think this, there was some kind of studio accident or earthquake, and a bunch of stuff was lost, and he decided to pursue it in animation because it was just cheaper than it, do his to do his vision in animation than to do it in um, live action. Um, I think that's what happened. That's, I'm pretty sure. But he was just interested in doing something different, something more subtle, something with its feet more on the ground than a lot of anime, than a lot of anime directors still are interested in doing. And so that led to this curious, that A led to a very different anime look for his stuff. And it also led to this. And it ultimately, it leads to things like Paprika, where he has. Where in that film, he has full control of, like, the fluidity of fantasy and reality and dream of, like, sleeping and waking. And it's, that's a very cool film. You should go listen to my episode. On that, and also go watch that movie if you're at all interested in Tokyo Godfather. Um, and there's some of that in Tokyo Godfather, but what I really want to talk about, and I want to talk about perception of reality with this with this movie. And you're like, Alex, I know you're talking about this movie. It's the best Christmas movie of all time. To which I say, yes, yes, it is. And if you don't think it's a Christmas slash holiday movie. You can fight me in the streets because it is the best Christmas slash holiday movie of all times. Um, <laughs> and the way you know that is it starts. It starts with a play about the Jesus, <laughs> a play about the birth of Christ, a nativity play being thrown by a church, and you meet your um, the three main characters. Um, Hannah, um, Misaki, and I think Jin. Um, three homeless people, all from different circumstances. But there's something you might miss about this film if you don't... It, there's something you might miss about this film on first viewing because it, it just... It, it seems like background fluff, and it seems like it's not... It seems vaguely unimportant. And that... Um, 
That is that this film is at all times aware of three variations of reality in the city of Tokyo. And it does several things to separate those three different variations of reality. The first variation that you're immediately slapped in the face with is what it's like to be a homeless person. What it's like to be a homeless person specifically in Japan and specifically in Tokyo. And then I'm going to take you through these three first and I'm going to elaborate on it. And then the next reality that you're immediately slapped in the face with is what it's like to be just be a normal person running around the world. And then you're specifically presented with the variation of reality that is the fantasy, that is the advertised reality, that is depicted in billboards and in one case inside of a suitcase and like on postcards and like a reality that does not exist but is the promise and is sitting atop all of everybody's heads. Um, for our homeless characters, for the homeless main cast, um, uh, for, for a homeless main cast, the, the, the top reality is always there and they're always staring at it, but their reality is very, is very much fleshed out and is very, it, these three characters all are all homeless for specific reasons. Some of them insane, some of, some of them stupid, and some of them meaningless, and some of them whatever. Um, but their reality is very different from the everyday people. And the everyday commuter people treat them with disdain. Like the, the everyday people you meet in this... In, in this very version of Tokyo, right around the holidays, are not people who are welcoming of, you know, that person is hard on their luck. I don't, I don't need to interact with them, but I also don't need to make them feel unwelcome. Um, you see this in, you see this most with uh, Jin. He gets the shit kicked out of him in one scene, and in another scene, because he's homeless... He just hasn't, like, because he's a homeless drunk, specifically. He just hasn't washed his clothes. And he hasn't taken a bath in probably at least a month and a half. So he smells pretty ripe. But his, like, his, like, homeless found family doesn't care because that's part of the deal. They're fucking homeless. Um, you can't stress that enough. They're Home. They they live in a cardboard box. They are so homeless. Um, but here's why I want to take you through the basic plot of this movie. Um, spoiler spoiler alert. Let's say spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Tokyo Godfather and you're listening to the show. Go watch Tokyo Godfathers. You will not regret it. It is, at the very least, an interesting ride. Satoshi Kon is 
a kind of the kind of director who, if you watch a movie two thirds through, you're just gonna watch all of it. You're just gonna watch all of it. You like you're gonna sit there and you're gonna watch the last third. I guarantee it. Um, but this movie is about three homeless people who find a baby in the trash and go on a journey of of self discovery and returning this baby. And the three homeless characters are um, Hannah of Drag Queen, of, <laughs> a, a, as she puts it, Queer Who Cares. I think her name is Misaki, who you come to find out later is a runaway who ran away from her father, who gave away her pet cat after she found out that he gave away her pet cat and stabbed him. In, in just like teen anger. And her mother, her mother is like devoutly Buddhist and does the um, Amida Buddha prayer, if you've ever seen it, um, which is a lot. Um, it's kind of it's kind of the Buddhist version of doing the um, cross, at, at doing the cross and prayer hands um, for Catholicism. It's it's a lot, um, <laughs> but so she ran away. Um, and then again, again is kind of the uh, last linchpin of the last story linchpin of the thing, and you basically come to find out that he was a degenerate drunk gambler who destroyed his life and nearly destroyed his entire family's life until he just like decided to be homeless and a drunk for the rest of his. And it's kind of like a weird like, oh, I fucked up. Time to drink until I die. Um, it's a very, a, a very, like, Gen X, a very, um, like, y- young boomer, like, d- get, guess I'll die kind of mentality. Um, and they find a baby, um, and they go on this kind of, like, shenanigan-laden... Adventure to return this baby to its owner. At first, Hannah wants to keep it. They realize they can't keep it. Um, Hannah runs away with the baby because she's uh, because she she, because if there's one thing I would level against this movie is that it has it's this like slightly negative stereotype towards queer people. In a way that lots of Japanese things do. If you look at Puri Puri Prisoner in One Punch Man, for example, he shares some of the same um, interesting, problematic design philosophy as a character. The one thing I will say that is unique about Hannah is she is... And I say she because she's very clearly a drag queen. Um, is very aware of her, um, of her of how she's perceived in her presence because at this one point when she hits on a taxi driver to get out of paying the fare because they homeless, um, and this, but what this movie does is it separates out the different classes of society 
and it shows and it shows them to you in super stark relief. You see in this movie at sep- at several at different intervals, you see um homeless people, absolutely. You see general like just work a day people who got a commute on the train and they they are too overloaded with life to have any compassion and in fact have anger towards anybody who doesn't like follow the rules of society. Um you see a immigrant family who is very poor and clearly taken advantage of by rich mobsters. You see rich fucking mobsters in this great fucking scene in this movie. It's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Is they're like they've like just found the grave of a dead baby so they can change um um the the baby's I forget the baby's name. Um so they can change the baby's diaper and give it milk and all this stuff because they straight up go fucking grave robbing because they're homeless, yo. Um, and they're trudging through the snow up like a thoroughfare and Gin goes, what's with this dude's parking job? Doesn't he know this is a public throughway? And they get to the other side of the car and they just... Biggest, fattest dude under this car. <laughs> like, half of his body is just stuck under the car. And <laughs> they're like, they keep walking. Like, they don't notice it at first. Or they, like, see it and their brain can. And they're just like, oh, fuck. We gotta help this dude. <laughs> and so, um, Miyuki holds the baby. Um, Miyuki, I think it's the baby's name. Um, the, uh, the female character. I'm gonna look him up right now. Because I'm getting names twisted. Um, the female teenage homeless girl main character holds the baby um, while Gin and Hannah just get get the baby out of the um, get get the car off the fat dude, and it's. The fat dude is like, um, hey, thanks. Uh, you'll never believe what happens. They tell this funny, they tell this like, kind of cute, stupid story, and then the fat dude is like, hey, what are you guys doing right now? I gotta go to my daughter's wedding. Why don't you come with me? I can feed the shit out of you. Um, whatever. <laughs> and he and I want to make a big thing clear here. He's the only person in this movie who is not homeless who regards them with any level of respect. And I don't think that's because they... And the movie makes it very clear that it's not because he... Like, he... um, It's not because he cares... uh, No, Miyuki, I was right. Miyuki is a... um, Is the... Is a... Um, female. It's a main female character name. Um, it's a main biologically female character name. I'm sorry. Um, it's not because he's. They just saved his life. It's because he's. Yes, is very rich, but he's very rich because of a criminal enterprise, and this is. 
bad people generally don't judge people as harshly as good people do. Or they judge people on a totally different set of criteria that had nothing to do with moralistic, societal pressure, whatever. Um, give you an idea, my friend Lauren, this is a reason to plug my podcast with Lauren, just, um, we were having a tech conversation and she said, like, you know, everybody went up in arms about cuties, but it's also the most watched thing on Netflix. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how it goes. You know, people decry porn right up until nobody's looking and they open up their laptop and just, like, get down to some porn. Um, it's the way the world works. There are, like, things you're supposed to despise. But if you're far, but if you're already outside of that, like, box of norms, then you have no reason to be like, hey, you look homeless. I'm not going to bring you to my daughter's wedding with all these rich mobsters and feed you. <laughs> There's no reason for him, for this guy to think like that. I wish I knew his, um, I wish I knew his name. But, um, the big, the big deal is that he, so they end up going to this, um, big wedding where, like, so one of the main hijinks in Sue and you're in, you, but that gets you to the poor immigrant family that lives in one of the back alleys of Tokyo that's covered in needles and is clearly very dangerous and very fucked up and shows you... A thing that I really like about um, Satoshi Kon's work in general is that he doesn't... Um, he doesn't... He doesn't do much glamorization of Tokyo. He draw he, he it's always represented beautifully in all of his work, but it's also represented honestly. And what I mean by that is that it's got exactly as much exuberance as you expect Tokyo to have, but no more. Um this is a thing this is a truth of um of um Cyberpunk 2077, that I can tell you after playing a, not a huge amount of it, but enough, is that game looks really beautiful, and it makes this dystopia look cool and, like, super lived in. And that game opens up with this, like, love letter to its own world building. <laughs> and, like, this... Radio DJ takes you around the city to all the different boroughs, and he like cracks jokes about how the how everybody's fucked because the one of the police got shot, and they they can't let that go. Um, if you played it, you know what I'm talking about. That if you let the game run without um spacing in or without um without going into the menu immediately, you get that opening every time, and. Satoshi Kon isn't interested in that. It isn't interested in that kind of, like, glorification fun thing. The most I think I've ever seen him do is actually the end of Tokyo Godfathers, which is when all the buildings dance to, um, to, like, Holy Nights or something in, Japan, in Japanese. It's very strange and very fun, and I love it. Um, <laughs> but he... This is a very honest version of the city. It's not 
pumping up the darkness, the potential darkness of Tokyo. It's not pumping up the glitz and glam. It's not highlighting mediocrity. And if you want to see what highlighting mediocrity means, um, actually, if you want to see what highlighting the underworld and mediocrity both mean, go take a look at um, the... I think the last... The, what they were, what's commonly referred to as the second season of Black Lagoon. Because that... That section where they're in Tokyo, this is true of Jormungand. I know I've bought both of these shows up nine million times. I've talked about both of them um, a bunch. Um, both have versions of Tokyo where the mediocrity is being broken apart by a section of the underworld from another part of the world. And it highlights it highlights the mediocrity as being the worst, most dreadful part of Tokyo. This this more highlights the like work a day, salary person salary man life that Tokyo can provide for people. It's just a thing people do. It's there's no there's no good or bad to it. But what it also does with the built with the incessant billboards and with the like opening of this fucking movie. This movie opens on this monkey ass looking fake baby in a manger in a nativity scene. It opens on like the idealistic like baby Jesus. And like I said, all throughout the movie you see vacation posters, you see the inside of a couple's um, vacation trip bag, and they like even they like Miyuki pulled out a pair like a song, and she's like, "Yeah, they get they, they fucking they they want to fuck," and it's all this. It's all in service of highlighting the different levels of just of of reality being presented to all of us. Constantly, when uh, so I'll give you a perfect example. Um, when I was watching One Piece for Film Gold, there was a character who's not a not a pivotal not a pivotal character. They tried, but he just like he's like they needed a character to get you from story point to story point that couldn't be a main character, and they came up with one. And it's fine, but he had some cool sunglasses. So I went and I got me some sunglasses that looked like them sunglasses. On the picture, on the picture, they had just the, like, dripping sexiest people wearing these, like, cool black-rimmed, yellow, yellow-tinted fucking aviator shades that are awesome. I got them for super discount because it was in within Black Friday nonsense. And they got here and they... They look pretty cool. I like them, but they are not the like dripping sex that these glasses that these glasses were on these people. Probably not even the same fucking glasses. Um, and that's that's what advertising does. I mean, I used to work in advertising. I used to work. I used to work as. I used to be the person who either decided on or. And, or literally built the things that sell people the dream. So I know 
a lot of why and how this stuff is done. And I've seen this movie a bunch of times. I've always noticed the, like, grinning, tanned people on billboards and stuff. But I never... It never stuck out to me so much as it did this time. So if you have seen Tokyo Godfather before, maybe go give it, like, even a partial watch. At least until the scene when they're on the train and they see and Miyuki sees her dad. And... Like, you'll see all these billboards, and you'll be like, whoa. They are, like, in the dead of fucking winter, when it is coming down outside, and you are following homeless people in the snow. You are haunted. This whole movie, and you as the viewer, are haunted by, like, Hawaiian shirt-laden, bikini-wearing... Summertime, summertime, hot girl summer fucking billboards. It's wild. And at the same time, pay attention to all the normal, pay attention to all the non-homeless people. And like, how kind of like, just getting by and just kind of okay but slightly miserable they all are. But also how they treat people who are worse off than them. Um, and also, it, it, the gangster section is hard to miss. But, like, in that gangster section, se section like, the gangsters don't care that, like, Gin, Miyuki, and Hana are there. They're, like, not asking questions. The boss brought them. The boss is, like, <laughs> the boss is, like, introducing them to his daughter on her wedding day. It's, it's very funny. Um, but he doesn't there's no judge everyone in that room had no judgment to put on to them they just have they're just like oh the boss bought some people who helped him out that seems fine thanks he's not dead yet um and it's just it's a really It's a really fascinating look at society. It's a really fascinating look. It's a re the reason why I wanted to call out the different like layers of society it's highlighting is because I was surprised at how specific it is. And I've been watching. I watched this show called All Rise, and All Rise is about like a black female judge. It's on ABC. It's like it's a, it's a courtroom drama. But what they do that's really smart and what they've kind of forced themselves into doing this season other than dealing with the pandemic, like this face shields and face masks and fucking um, plexiglass everywhere. It's kind of stunning, honestly. Um, but they kind of force themselves into a corner where they have to deal with race. And they have to deal with race at a bunch of different levels. But they've also made really interesting casting choices to contextualize that. So in this show, the head DA is East Asian. And he's like, and the, the, the character who is, um, who is African American, who's um, new to the DA's office, and in the most recent episode, he just let off a a black kid who 
like made a mistake in his life and was being prosecuted to full extent of law because he had just turned 18 and they were taking advantage of it to make an example out of this kid whose life was going to be ruined because he like fucked up and said, yeah, sure, I'll sell some coke to make some money on the side. And the guy's like, look, there's all these problems to the, um, to the, I think he's the actor of Japanese. And I don't think they necessarily planned it this way, but he, but there's this, there's this partner, there's this, if you're not fixing the problem, you're part of the problem, feel to the, to the head DA. And he, he should have said, like, there are problems. We Like, we can talk about it. Just don't go rogue without letting me fucking know first. Um, and it, it's this really nuanced understanding that, like, after, after society gets started, everybody who continues to aid in its weird fucked upness is part of the problem. And and the Tokyo Godfathers is about three characters who are living in that society, and like basically a Christmas miracle saves them. You you come to find out ultimately that Hannah has a really severe form of cancer. Um, Miyuki. It gets like forcefully reconnected with her father, and she's gonna be fine. Um, but Gin, his big his big win is he gets a. It's like near the end of the film, you see a TV broadcast where you see the winning lotto, lotto numbers, and he has the winning lotto numbers. And so the movie gives you that good, warm feeling all the way at the end because all the characters have done this amazingly good deed that the start is Gin saying to do what you do when you find a baby in the trash. You go to the police. You, you go to the police and they deal with it. But ended with them doing like an extraordinary thing and getting all of these different rewards for it. Like, um... Hana will now have treatment. Will now have money. There'll now be money for Hana's treatment. Gin will now have money. Period. To like, be able to help his daughter, who ends up who you end up meeting. Um, Miyuki gets reunited with her father in a way that's like unavoidable, and they both have to talk it out. And it's, but at the same point, all these lucky breaks. And them taking the extraordinary step of doing something extraordinary when really they are the last people equipped to do it is, but also weirdly the only, really and truthfully, the only people equipped to do it is this, is this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is this reality that the movie sets up this karmic reward for all these little, these huge karmic rewards for all of them at the end because 
that way you walk away feeling hopeful for, for those characters in the movie. Because otherwise you wouldn't. And they make it very clear that otherwise these characters would be kind of screwed. Ultimately, the like end game here, if the, if all these little hat tricks weren't pulled off at the end, is Hana dies, Gin drinks himself to death, and Miyuki is just alone on the streets as like a homeless twenty-something woman doing who knows what to to get by who knows how, and. It, It's just, uh, the whole movie is interesting, and the whole movie gets more interesting each time you see it, and, <laughs> like I said, for the first time in decades, you can see it in English, in, within English dubbed, uh, thank you G-Kids, and it's not like a weird fever dream. It's not like you're remembering what they said. It's not like you, like, oh, is this it? And then it's the subtitle version again. Um, but on that note, my name has been Alex. You've been listening to Lunchbox Radio. If you like this show, you can subscribe to it in whatever you're using to listen to me right now. But until Sunday, when another Sunday edition comes out, I will talk to you next time.